0: Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, October 7th. I don't know about you, but my trees are as green as ever. That has absolutely nothing to do with our topic on the roundup today, and that's health insurance. We're going to talk about the Census Bureau's latest annual report on the uninsured and the Commonwealth Fund's biennial report on health insurance. Biennial means every other year, biannual means twice a year. I always get those two confused. Two people who aren't confused about what these new reports mean for healthcare and for healthcare consumers are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. But before we say hello to Dave and Julie, I wanted to say hello to the sponsor of the Foresight Friday Roundup podcast, Infor. By connecting the business and mission sides of healthcare, institutions can enhance staff experience and simplify patient interactions. With data-driven insights and greater operational control, our sponsor, Infor, supports your company in making healthcare a calling again for your staff. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Dave? Dave?
1: Julie, you'll be happy to hear that I spent a couple of wonderful days with our friend, Carla Denise Edwards, this last week. We met with the community life team, including two resident champions for an affordable housing development that the Community Builders is undertaking in downtown Detroit. It's just so empowering to see the holistic links between housing, community, and well-being come into existence. Carla Denise, of course, was over the moon. So I'm seeing the glasses half full, Dave, this morning, at least until we start talking about the inadequacies of health insurance.
0: <laughs> I'll circle this day on my calendar. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Julie, how are you?
2: Well, I had a banner week as a healthcare consumer, so I'll try to break it down. I spent two hours at Walgreens waiting for a drug for my daughter that they didn't have the supply. They had to call the Walgreens. I had to drive half an hour to another Walgreens to pick it up. I paid $1,400 and 93 cents. And then I discovered the GoodRx coupon that brought it down to $187. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, GoodRx. After spending an hour on the phone with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts on Monday to learn that this was actually legitimate because I have a high deductible plan, which of course is partially what we're talking about today. I mean, it was a disaster. Wow. So yeah, that's how I'm doing.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. That's half empty. So <laughs> I think you're going to need your virtual therapist
0: after that week. Wow.
2: Oh my gosh. It's been a lot of family therapy this week. That's for sure.
0: That's a huge, huge price difference. Isn't that the- crazy?
2: I know. And if you're a consumer and you don't know about the, these coupons, like, oh, my God. Right. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, that's kind of a interesting segue into our topic. I was going to ask you guys how green it is in your neighborhood because the trees are still green here. But maybe we'll just skip that and go right into insurance. Is that all right with you guys?
1: Oh, sure. Fine by me.
0: Yeah, that would be an awkward non sequitur. So anyways, let's talk health insurance. The Census Bureau came out with its annual report on the uninsured. And here are the top line findings. The number of uninsured Americans dropped by about 1 million people last year to about 27.2 million from about 28.3 million in 2021. The percentage of uninsured Americans dropped slightly to 8.3% last year from 8.6% in 2021. Of those with health insurance last year, 66% were covered by a private insurance plan, while 35.7% were covered by public insurance like Medicare or Medicaid. Now, I'm an English major, but even I know those percentages add up to more than 100. That's because one person can be covered by more than one type of plan during the year. So I did read the fine print there in the report. And in 2021, the ratio between private and public coverage was 66.5% to 34.5%. That means there was an uptick in the percentage of people getting benefits through a public health insurance program. Dave, is this a no-news-is-good-news story, or is there anything in the numbers that concern you? And what do the numbers say about market reforms to achieve universal coverage? It's certainly not bad news, but
1: it's also not entirely good news. I'll get to that in a second. More important than Medicaid's steady state was the sizable decline in childhood poverty rates from 9.7% in 2020 to 5.2% in 2021. That drop was due almost entirely to the childhood tax credit that Congress enacted as part of the American Rescue Plan. If we really do believe the children are our future, we'll continue to fund robust anti-poverty programs. It's remarkable how much economic relief small amounts of money can create for impoverished families. With more economic security, those families have more capacity and bandwidth to think about and engage in activities that promote their health and well-being. Of course, these gains in poverty relief and Medicaid coverage may be temporary. The expanded child tax credit ended last December, and the pandemic-related Medicaid expansion provisions will likely end soon. HHS estimates that when that happens, 15 million people could lose their Medicaid coverage. Again, according to HHS, half of those who will lose Medicaid coverage will still qualify but won't receive it because of, quote, administrative issues, unquote. How sad is that? Paperwork getting in the way of insurance coverage, it happens all the time in America today and it leads to unnecessary illness, injury, death, just terrible outcomes. And just to make matters worse, the CDC reported that U.S. life expectancy declined again in 2021. It's up in other advanced economies. So once again, the U.S. is an outlier. The almost three-year decline in life expectancy pushes us to levels not seen since 1996. The two-year decline, 20 and 21, is the largest in the U.S. since the early 1920s and not surprisingly at all, the decline, hits Native American black and brown populations the hardest. As I'm digesting all this dismal data, I'm haunted by two numbers that came out during last week's White House conference on hunger and nutrition. First one, half of all Americans today are either diabetic or pre-diabetic, half. Secondly, one out of every three government dollars now funds healthcare expenditures. We're essentially chasing our tail by not making investments in public health and community well-being. Simultaneously, of course, hospitals and health systems are bleeding red ink due to volume declines, inflationary pressures, and less attractive case mix indices. They're pleading for more funding, and they have very, very powerful lobbyists. I put all this together and, and come to the conclusion that America's at a fork in the road More of the same expenditure patterns will yield more of the same dismal population health statistics. Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Unfortunately, this isn't any joking matter. The country clearly needs more investment in health and less spending on health care, particularly given the gargantuan amount of waste embedded within the current system. Which path will we take? Continue on the dark road of status quo health care and dismal health statistics? or move into the light by investing in health, well-being, and human potential. (laughs) I've definitely gone half empty because I'm afraid to answer what I think will happen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess I won't mark this day on my calendar, Dave. Thanks. Julie, any questions for Dave?
2: Yeah, Dave, the way Medicaid and the government subsidies are propping things up right now just looks like a house of cards. But I have a different angle of a question for you. I saw a stat that 48% of physicians said a single-payer system mixed with insurance is the best way to provide healthcare in the U.S., and they're seeing massive access issues. Why do you think, at the time we're at right now, that physicians are still thinking that single-payer is the way to go?
1: Well, they certainly don't teach enough economics in medical school, that's for sure. But the answer is, we've been at this market-based health reform for quite a while, And we're just not seeing improvement, even though the spending keeps going up, the outcomes keep getting worse. And those of us who believe in bottom-up, pluralistic insurance coverage and achieving universal health care in that way really need to make a concerted effort to prove that this is a better way than single payer. And I don't know how much longer America, much less physicians, will have with this current system that we have that, as I said before, ever more spending on health care and then worse health care outcomes. At some point, we're going to say, why shouldn't we be like Germany? Let the government just manage it all. And that, I think, would be, that is the wrong answer, but it's a logical outcome if we don't show progress. So I, I don't really think physicians are any different than the American people. They're thinking about the same type of pattern that we're seeing, increasing costs and worsening outcomes and
0: asking, why don't we just do
1: what other countries do? And um, they're not wrong to ask it, but it, it isn't the right answer.
0: Yeah. More frustration than anything else. Thanks, Dave. Now let's talk about the second report, this one from the Commonwealth Fund. The report is based on a survey of a representative sample of about 8,000 people in the U.S. And here are some of the top line survey results. 43% of the respondents were underinsured. Underinsured means they either were uninsured, had gaps in their coverage over the past year, or had coverage that didn't give them access to affordable care. 44% of people with coverage through the individual market or through an ACA plan on a health insurance exchange were underinsured. And 29% of people with coverage through their employer were underinsured. Julie, the Census Bureau report is telling us that most people have insurance. But this report is telling us that much of that insurance is crappy. That's an official underwriting term, by the way. Do you agree with the findings? How do those findings affect investment and market innovations? And what can the market do to ensure patients have access to all those innovations?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is quite something, but right at a time when a record number of Americans are covered by health insurance. I mean, all-time low of 8% and we're having these massive issues that are really preventing consumers from being part of the game and the way it was intended. So one more stat, Bert, I was struck by before I move into what I think is uh, about half the respondents said they wouldn't have the money to pay an unexpected $1,000 medical bill within the next 30 days. And that's, you know, roughly half, 42% for white adults, but 69% for black, 63% for Hispanic. So just to double down on Dave's point, we know we're driving a broader health equity issue here and (laughs) these stats put a finer point on it. I actually didn't find it surprising that Democrats are more concerned about this than the Republicans, but that might be a separate podcast. And I just wanted to bring us all back down to earth with one of the quotes by one of the researchers that said, the primary purpose of health insurance is to help people get healthcare in a timely fashion and protect them from catastrophic costs in the event of serious illness. Insurance fills these needs when coverage is continuous and comprehensive. So I find it interesting that we're really focusing on catastrophic in that quote, but we're also focusing on continuous and comprehensive. So Dave's right, costs are skyrocketing for some real reasons and some absolutely ridiculous reasons. Employers have shifted far more cost to employees than employees can bear at this point. Government programs are actually pretty good right now, but they're at risk of going away. So every player around the hoop has plenty they could do, honestly, to help ensure coverage and frankly, making it continuous and comprehensive. So I'll get on my soapbox now. Get ready.
0: (laughs) Go, go.
2: (laughs) Providers, they have got to face the music that it's time to lower their fixed costs instead of just jacking rates. And I understand the workforce costs and I understand you know other costs that are, are being driven by inflation but we have had the opportunity to be smart about our strategy and Dave Johnson I'm sorry to say this I don't care if you're a for-profit or not-for-profit you got to figure this out for the good of the people like it just we're losing our minds here
1: oh amen and, to that I, I absolutely agree with you on that
2: and then when I look at health plans and employers you know we've been toying with driving care upstream We've been toying with navigating employees and members to optimize their covered benefits, right, their use of what they're covered for. We've been triaging care to the most appropriate and cost-effective providers, or at least saying that we're talking about thinking about doing it. And overall, I think health plans and employers are trying to improve member and employee health engagement. However, you know, they've adopted a bunch of point solutions and they're having a hard time managing those and they're increasingly complaining about it as if it's the point solution's fault. And we have a few problems that are solvable, but we need like boring things like middleware (laughs) and we need business cases that focus on engaging with purpose. We need platforms and These point solutions actually can do a lot of good, but they actually need partners in these employers and partners in the health plans to achieve common goals for these employees and members. Otherwise, we're just checking boxes and hoping for a miracle. And, you know, everyone's meeting their KPIs and getting their bonuses for the year. Like it's it's not working. So we can solve a lot of problems with today's tools and technified ways and novel care models and preventative capabilities and God knows the scientific breakthroughs, I mean, really, but we have all the pieces and I hate to to play Dave Johnson's broken record here, but what we need are some value-based care models at scale and we need them yesterday. All
0: well, great points and really drives home that example you gave at the start with the prescription experience you had this week. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? Well, you can play my broken record as often
1: as you want, Julie. It's an oldie but a goodie. (laughs) And hopefully at some point we won't need it anymore. But what I want to ask you about is different than the uninsured that we're focused on right now. I want to ask you about the extent to which Americans are overinsured. Something like 53% or 55% of Americans with commercial health insurance, private health insurance, are now in high deductible plans, sometimes called consumer-directed health plans don't you love the language, very high percentages of these individuals don't meet their annual deductible threshold. So they're essentially cash payers for the healthcare services they do use. Does this strike you as odd, given everything else that you were just talking about, that America has both an underinsured and an overinsured problem? And what, if anything, should we do about that?
2: You know, Dave, I bet if you broke down the access and affordability issues on folks in high deductible plans, you'd find that there's not truly over-insurance in the spending patterns of all those people. I mean, I think they're really controlling their spend, right? They're trying to spend as little. I mean, look at me, trying to get it down from $1,493 to $187. Not that I'm the poster child, but... So I don't know that I would call it over-insurance, but what I would say is... Weren't those plans put in place to really try to create us as consumers to look for the best cost and to start to push from the bottom? And it has transparency hasn't evolved in the way that we would all like it to have evolved. But I do think that actually, let me just use my example for one more thing. In probably the 44th minute of my discussion with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, I asked if. I had seven days to rebuild this. Where where could I get the drug cheaper? Could could I've done something differently? He said, "I don't know. You should ask your physician." <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea.
0: And they're very happy to answer that question for you. Too. Yeah,
2: yeah, they love that. But you know, yeah. he, it is the Massachusetts rep who reminded me that GoodRx existed and. If this weren't a regulated drug that I had to pick up by midnight on Sunday and da, 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 I would have sat back to try to figure out how to use one of the new amazing you know, vendors in this area. So the reality of all this is transparency needs to be better and more accessible. And I just want to give a shout out to all the navigation tools out there. You know, we work at a company called NIA, but there are several other types of models like this that try to help employees and health plan members Understand where to go for care, where's the best place to go based on the quality, based on the cost, and create consumers. The problem is, those solutions haven't quite hit the mark either on how they're pricing that work or really being able to engage people, individuals. And that's where I get back to employers and health plans need to put more skin in the game.
0: It's almost like they should teach healthcare consumerism in high school, right? Just like consumers ed that we had in high school, how to write a check, open a bank account, take out a loan, that sort of stuff. I mean, that's what you really need at that point, right? I mean, Julie, you're fortunate enough to be a good healthcare consumer, be able to find good Rx and figure that situation out. But most people can't. So the health insurance business model, actually, the business model for all types of insurance really is something to behold. You know, all the money goes in, very little of the money goes out. And when it does go out, your premiums go up and more money goes in again. It's pure genius. Don't let your coverage lapse, please. Now let's briefly talk about other news that happened this week. Julie, what happened this week that made you go, oh, wow?
2: Well, two things. I noticed that Brian Donnelly is moving to COO of New York Presbyterian. So he's going to supersede Laura Fries, who's retiring. I suppose that we might see him leading that system someday. Interesting. And second thing is, we just had, this is, comes in like the funny category, local news, we have an ambulance company that is going out of business because it doesn't receive enough reimbursement from insurance and Medicare and state Medicaid's programs can't sustain its operations. I don't feel bad for these ambulance companies, <laughs> but I thought it was an interesting note in today's. Environment.
0: Were they gonna? Were they blame gas prices or something?
2: They did do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Classic. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any other news this week that gave you an aha moment? Well,
1: rather than news, I've got a statistic to share with our audience today. I'm writing a piece for next month's HFM magazine about rewiring healthcare's smartest professionals, and it's not doctors; it's revenue cycle professionals. We all know that revenue cycle management is a massive and growing industry, but to tell you the truth, I wasn't sure how big it was. So I found the most comprehensive and I guess acknowledged report, which is by Grandview Research, and that pegs the RCM market at 140.4 billion in 2022 and growing at 10.3% through thirty thirty. Just to put that into comparison, IBIS world estimates the U.S. automobile market to be just over $100 billion and growing at just 2.5% this year. Let that sink in for a second. In today's America, processing medical claims, which doesn't add a dime to advancing productivity, is far, far more lucrative than manufacturing and selling cars and trucks. How did it ever get this crazy? Dave, what was
0: that market size of the revenue cycle uh,
1: industry again? 140 billion <laughs> for automobiles. So it's 40 percent larger and, and growing at four times the rate of, uh, of the
0: car. Well, I, I know my career and my next life, right? Interesting. Thanks, Dave, and thank you again, Julie, and thanks again to our sponsor, Infor. Infor connects the business and mission sides of healthcare, enhancing the staff experience and simplifying patient interactions with data-driven insights and greater operational control. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com, and don't forget to tell a friend about Foresight Friday Roundup subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare thanks for listening i'm dave berta for foresight health